We're in chapter 27 in our study of 1 Samuel. Um, I don't think we'll finish this book today, but probably next week we will, and then we're just going to transition immediately into 2 Samuel. I want to make a few introductory comments when we do that. But uh, I, I said chapter 27. I meant chapter 28. We use the word unbelievable a lot. Um, you know, something happens and we say it's unbelievable. See something, that's unbelievable. Ball score, football, or basketball or something. But when you read chapter 28, the real meaning of that word unbelievable sits here. You, you, as you read it, you get a sense, how could this man, Saul, fall to such a low state, spiritually speaking, as well as just his, his common sense approach to leadership. He's in crisis. Philistines, I'll give you the setting. We'll read it, but I'll give you the setting. The Philistines, again, are gathering and mobilizing for an invasion of Israel. Um, they largely uh, invade into Judah, but this time they're going to head north. And as you're going to see, they're going to attempt to conquer the Jezreel Valley. And I'll explain a little more about that next week because that's where Mount Gilboa is. And as you will see, that is where Saul will die. He will die on Mount Gilboa. So that invasion has started, and it is an attempt. This is not a punitive raid into Judah. This is an attempt to conquer the entire uh, area of Israel. And their, their, their strategy is divide and conquer. They want to split Israel in half by conquering the Jezreel Valley. That's, it's just starting, and this terrifies Saul. But look at the introduction. It's about David, and then we switch. To Saul. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. All right, now we're going to immediately shift to Saul. But this is also unbelievable. As, as you know from our previous couple of weeks of study, David is terrified of Saul. He's tired of running from him for 10 years. So he's finding safety among the Philistines, all places. Now, that loyalty that he's developed, developed with the Philistine leader of Achish, that's his name of Gath. But anyway, he is making this assumption that David is going to join him in the battle against his people, Israel. As the Philistines are making this attempt to split this on half by conquering the Jezreel Valley, his assumption is, you're going to go with me. And David says, yes, I'm going to go with you. And Achish says, I I'm paraphrasing all this, but I appreciate your love. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. I mean, <laughs> you think, what? <laughs> you can hardly believe it. But David is, in effect, agreeing to join the Philistines to fight against his people. We'll come back to this. In a little bit, but the text now shifts to Saul. David is with the Philistines. He presumably agrees to go with them. We'll see how that develops. But now to Saul. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So when David replied, "Then you will come to know what your servant can do," could that have been a little tongue in cheek? It could be. Um, I mean, knowing what, knowing what eventually transpired. Yeah, I don't know if David knew all that would transpire. David 
because as you're going to see, it's after we, all the stuff with the Witch of Endor, we move into the next chapter. David is shocked because the other Philistine leaders don't want David to go with him. But David wants to go with him. But the other Philistine leaders nix that. And Aki says, I'm sorry, the guys don't want you to go with us. Go back to Ziklag. Remember, that's the town where David is, is living. So it's, however we read that, it seems to me, Fred, that he is agreeing to join with Akish in effect to fight his own people, which is astonishing, really. We'll come back to that because the next chapter, this is, it's, a, it's kind of unusual, but yet it isn't. In good literature, you do what is sometimes called a walk-on. You, you introduce a topic, then you go tell another story, and you come back to this topic. We'll come back to this in chapter 29. Now, to introduce Saul's role in this, there are two facts that are established in verse 3 into verse 4. Fact number one, Samuel dies. And all Israel had mourned him and buried him in Ramah. Ramah, you might remember, it was his hometown in the west side of the Ephraim land grant. So that's important, and, and I'll, I'll explain why that's important in just a minute. The second fact is, in the middle of verse 3, Saul had put the medium and the necromancers, <coughs> necromancers out of the land. Now, uh, I, I hope you understand what that means. Mediums. They are, uh, this is the occult. This is something that the Bible forthrightly condemns. But the mediums is someone who, who uh, talks to people who have died. Um, and you, he, that person is the medium between you, the human being, and the person who's died. But stuff going on even among Americans today, they pay a lot of money to people who are mediums. Uh, it's very much a part of the New Age movement. It's very much a part of the New Age worldview. But my point is, Saul also had gotten rid of the necromancers. These are people who talk to, talk to the dead. They bring the dead back and have conversations with them. Both of these things are, for, among many others, are forthrightly rightly condemned in Deuteronomy 8, in the law. God wants nothing to do with this. As the law is clearly establishes, this this was um, this was something that's energized and empowered by satanic evil, and so God does not want His people to deal with this. So Saul, as the king, earlier would have been presumably a number of years earlier, Saul had outlawed all of this and driven these people from the country. There, we 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 know almost nothing about what Saul had done because it isn't recorded in any major way in the Bible. There isn't any chapter on Saul dealing with his evil. But Saul was doing the right thing. So these are two facts. Samuel's dead, and previously Saul had done away with all aspects of the occult, the satanic rituals of mediums, of witchcraft, of necromancy, of divination, all of those things that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 8. Now, that's important. Because of what Saul does. Now, back, verse 4, again, kind of sets the context for us. Why is Saul so afraid? The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. Now, if, if you are interested in this, you, you may not be, but I have given you a map. It's on page 7 in your packet. 
But Shunem is, as I said, in the Jezreel Valley. And you can see it here. Again, if you don't know this, it's all right. But down here is Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The Jezreel Valley is a lush, rich agricultural valley that splits Israel in two in the north. North of the Jezreel Valley is Galilee. South of the Jezreel Valley is Samaria and Judah. Okay? So this is very important. It's a strategy that throughout all of military strategy has been followed. To conquer an enemy, you split the enemy in half. And you conquer one part, and you conquer the other part. That's what Joshua followed in the conquest when you read the book of Joshua. He split Canaan in half and conquered the southern half first, conquered the northern half second. That's what the Philistines are doing. Now, so they're in Shunem. They are in the Jezreel Valley. Shunem is one of those towns not too far from Mount Gilboa. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And on that same map, I show you where Gilboa is. There, when you're standing on the west side of the Jezreel Valley, you see Mount Gilboa, the hills of Moray, and Mount Tabor. All three of those are very strategic hills mentioned a lot in the, in the Old Testament scripture. So that makes a lot of sense. Here's Shunem. Saul's on Mount Gilboa. His idea is he's going to attack the Philistines. Their idea is they're going to attack Saul. <laughs> Because if they can successfully deal with Saul, they will have split Israel in half by conquering the Jezreel Valley. Okay. So you understand that? I mean, the geography of that isn't that important if you're not interested in it, but I want to do the best I could to explain it to you. Verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now, I read from the ESV translation. Yours might be a little different. In one or two words, but essentially the point is, Saul's unglued here. He doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? Verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. And don't forget one other key point, who else is dead? Samuel. So many, many, many times had gone to Samuel out of desperation, but Samuel's dead. So the means by which God communicated with the king, dreams, you remember, just think of one example, Daniel. How many important dreams are there in Daniel? Think of the life of Joseph. How many dreams are there that are important in the life of Joseph? Nothing from God. The Urim is that special thing the high priest used, where they would ask God a question, the Urim would answer yes or no. The high priest is mediating God's will. Or the prophet, those who speak for God. Samuel was a prophet. Now, you might ask the question, why? Why doesn't God answer Saul? Why is heaven silent when Saul asks for help? Well, the answer goes back to all the previous chapters about Saul's spiritual life, about Saul's relationship with God, and Saul's defiance of God. God is silent because he has already, he, God, has already abandoned Saul. Now that sounds harsh, but that is the point. Saul has been under the severe discipline of God. Then Saul said to his servants, I'm meeting in verse 7 now, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. 
Now, before we finish that verse, aren't you a little astounded? <laughs> we read in verse 3 that Psalm had gotten rid of, Saul had gotten rid of all the mediums and necromancers and divination practices, everybody else, which he was, was, was supposed to do. Somehow he must have sensed, probably didn't get them all. There are probably still some mediums secretly practicing their occult arts. You guys who are his aid, you guys find me one. Now, let's step back again and think a little bit about this. <clears throat> if God is silent in Saul asking him for help and appealing to him and so on, what would God have wanted to see in Saul's life for God to answer him again? Repentance. A repentant, contrite heart. You don't see that. This is a cry of expediency. I'm in trouble, God, help! I haven't talked to you in years. I'm not particularly interested in much you have to say, but I don't have anywhere else to turn. Help! God has said, just a minute here. I'm not, I'm not the kind of God who is your therapist. And you get in trouble, then you come to me. My approach to relationship is you are humble, you are dependent, you are trusting me. I'm not a God you come to just when you're in trouble. Now, it isn't that God doesn't help in time of trouble. That's not the point. But Saul's entire life has been void of any contrite, repentant, humble heart before God. And so because God is silent and Saul is unwilling to have that repentant, contrite heart, he seeks another supernatural answer to his question. This is the supernatural power of Satan. Now, I'm putting it that way because the Bible says mediums, necromancy, and all that stuff are the tools of Satan. Whether Saul is consciously thinking that way or not is not my point. But the reality is, if he doesn't hear from God and his supernatural power, he's going to go to the other supernatural power of the universe. And it's unbelievable. I mean, as I said at the beginning, in that overused word of unbelievable in our culture today, this is truly unbelievable. It's unimaginable to Saul would do this. Find me a medium, someone who can talk to the dead so that I can find out what I'm supposed to do. They came back to him and said, there is a medium at Endor. Now, I'll, I'll just, just follow him. Here's Shunem. Here's Gilboa. Endor's right here. So it's real close. It's about seven miles. So that's kind of at one level. That's good news for Saul. I don't have to go very far. But the other sense of it, you now get pretty close to the Philistine garrisons there. So, I mean, he just, he, he hears what he wants to hear. There is still a functioning media, and she's not that far from where we are, Saul. So how's Saul now going to do this? 
Is he going to get on his horse? Well, he didn't have a horse. Is he going to get his donkey? And is he going to head into Endor with his crown, with his scepter, with his sword? Going into this little village at the base of, of the mount there and announce himself. Oh, I want to see the witch. No, look at verse 8. He disguised himself. He put on other garments. And he and two men went, and they came to the woman by night. <laughs> Most expositors assume, and that's probably correct, that he puts on this disguise because he's so close to the Philistines. I mean, he's really not that far from where the Philistines' encampment is at Shunem. So whatever this, he's not announcing I'm the great king, here I am, help me. He's disguised it's at night. It's done surreptitiously. And he says to her, I'm in the middle of verse 8, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. I want you, says Saul speaking to the, to the medium, the witch of Endor, I want you to bring somebody up from the dead. I want to talk to this person. <clears throat> she said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Verse back to verse 3. So you, can, you get the sense. One, she knows what Saul had done. She knows that even as she has been practicing this art of being a medium, this, this dark art of being a medium, that she's going against the law, and she's afraid. Now, did she know it was Saul? Presumably not. But she does know this guy's somebody important because of the people who are with him. So don't you know what Saul did? Why then are you laying, I'm at the end of verse 9, why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Don't you know that if Saul found he's going to kill me? Look at this astounding response by Saul. Saul swore to her by the Lord. And please note, the title there of Lord is Yahweh. It's in capital letters. As Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Do you think God was honored by that oath he just took, by that vow he just dispensed? I swear by Lord Almighty that you will not be killed. I rather suspect God up in heaven and throne there saying, I can't believe what this guy's doing. Gabriel, do you see that? Now, obviously that didn't happen. I'm trying to do a little funny here. Break the tension of this, this, this sense of it. It's unbelievable. By Yahweh, I swear, no punishment shall come upon you. Then the woman said, presumably she's satisfied by this. Obviously, it's kind of important. By Yahweh, I swear, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel for me. How did this chapter begin? By declaring Samuel's dead. Saul had gone to Samuel many times for counsel. He's dead. Everything else is shut down. He does not know what to do. So in the back of his warped and twisted mind, 
I'm going to go to a medium, a necromancer. She's going to bring somebody back from the dead so I can talk to them. And I want to talk to Samuel. It would be like me, which is that's an absolutely ridiculous thing, but it would be like me wanting some necromancer to bring Daniel back to the dead. I'd really like to have a conversation with Daniel. I, he's one of those Old Testament prophets I'd really like to talk to. I have hundreds of questions I want to ask him. But that's not the level which Saul is panic. And he, I guess, in his warped, twisted mind, believed that a practice of a practice of occult arts can bring Samuel back. And he can ask him, what should I do? He said, Bring me a Samuel. Then woman saw Samuel. She cried out with a loud voice. Now that's interesting. That's very interesting. <clears throat> because Samuel came back. And she sees him. <clears throat> and she says to Saul, see, the money you're going to pay me is worth it, isn't it? I brought him back. That's not her response. The Hebrew there is very, very intense. She is almost out of control with fear. <laughs> That's an Ekman paraphrase of this. <laughs> I mean, really. She's <laughs> a loud voice. This isn't, oh my, look. No, this is. <laughs> so we have to try to interpret that. This isn't the norm for her which always gives you a little bit of a sense of what necromancy and mediums and all this stuff really is. But this is not the norm where she really successfully brings somebody back from the dead. But she did. And obviously God in his permissive will is allowing this. And she is aghast at what's happened. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So she looks at him and says, you're Saul. You've deceived me. The king said, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Literally, the Hebrew there is gods coming up out of the earth. This, again, this is, um, this doesn't make any sense to you and me. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, that term and that expression was used constantly. The gods are coming back. To talk to us. The gods are revealing things to us. The gods are acting through dreams, through necromancy. The gods are communicating to us. That's what she's saying. It's literally, it and that's why I don't quite understand, I read from the ESV, why they translate it singular. I saw God. It's not singular. It's plural. I see gods coming up out of the earth. That, that For you and me, that means nothing. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was not a, the way in which the gods are communicating to us. These are polytheists, these are animists, these are, these are people that don't follow the true God at all. But nonetheless, she said, this is the one. I'm seeing gods. This is how the gods are communicating. He said to her, what is his appearance? An old man coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, I believe... Number one, that this is truly Samuel. 
and I'll explain why in just a minute. Number two, if we think about this theologically, the best way to think about it and express it theologically is this. This is the permissive will of God. He is permitting this. He is permitting this as an oracle of judgment against Saul. And finally, as Samuel begins to speak in verse 16, I want you to notice, you can count them with me if you wish, but he will use the Lord, and that's in capital letters, uppercase letters, that's Yahweh, seven times. God is permitting it. He's going to use it as an oracle of judgment against Saul, and it is validated by Samuel's use of the great covenant self-existent name, Yahweh, the self-existent being of the universe, transcendent, self-existent, self-sufficient being of the universe. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? The Lord, that is the first use of it, has turned from you and become your enemy. Verse 17, the Lord, second use, has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord, third use, has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Chapter 15, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, the fourth use, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord, fifth use, has done this thing to you. Moreover, the Lord, sixth use, will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your son shall be with me. The Lord, final use, will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. In God's permissive will, he allows Samuel, quote, to come up, close quote, and deliver an oracle of judgment against Saul. And the peak, the apex of that judgment is, tomorrow, Saul, you're going to die. And in addition, the last sentence of the oracle your people are going to lose to the Philistines. And that is true. This is a massive victory for the Philistines. They split Israel in half. They conquered the Jezreel Valley. And they, they will monopolize so much in Israel for the next several years until David becomes the king. And then David is going to deal with the Philistines, neutralize them, and pretty much the Philistines will not be a problem anymore. But that's several years down the road. So this is, this is a, I've said it, I think, three times. This is God's permissive will. We're saying this delivering an oracle of judgment against Saul. Could I ask a question? Oh, yes, please. Um, the, um, the plural that, that you're referring to is, I believe, Elohim, correct? The, what's translated God that's there? That's correct. Back, back in the previous, what we were talking about earlier, yes, yes, that's correct. And um, can you um, put some more color around, you know, I've always seen that as kind of a Elohim as one of the names of uh, God, and I see it being used in a different context here. So I, I need to 
fill a gap here? Well, it, it, well, it, number one, Elohim is one of the most important titles or names, if you will, of God in the Old Testament. It's the term for God used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. That's Elohim there. However, it is also used, and, and Russ, that's how it's being used here. Remember, this text is written in Hebrew. Uh-huh. And this this woman who lives in Endor is in, is in Israel territory, Hebrew fuel territory. And so what she is saying there, there is, if you're going to talk about God's plural, not the God, not the Elohim of Israel, you're talking about God's plural coming out of, up out of the earth. That was a, as I said a moment ago, a rather normal ancient or eastern way of talking about their God. This woman is not a faithful follower of Yahweh Elohim at all. What she had done is she practices dark her dark arts of Satan, which is what occult arts really are. She is saying something that a typical necromancer would say. I'm seeing gods coming. God, the gods are communicating to us. So, Russ, when she uses that term, she's not using it as the covenant title of God. She's using it as a word, the gods. And I mean, it, you know, for me, God is a very, and I use it as an English word, is a very precious term. Uh-huh. It means a great deal to me. And as all of us do, we capitalize it. But there are a lot of people in our culture that use God, small g, to refer to lots of things. In my view, they use it in a very irreverent, virtually blasphemous way. That's how she's using it. I see. So it's it, it, it's not a specific reference, it, or these are demons that she's seeing, but she's referring yep. to Samuel um, in this context. Who do you see? You see this, and then she switches right. context to Samuel. Um, that's right. That, so that's exactly right. I'm, I'm conflating the two, and they, they don't fit in the same box. Yeah, no, don't, that's, right. that's Samuel, right. Demon. That's she... I believe in the, the language there, when, when her exclamation when she sees Samuel, I believe she was shocked at what she saw. Mm-hmm. And which gives us a little insight. She's probably not been successful in bringing anybody back from the dead like this before. <laughs> it's the first time for her. And that's why the only way you and I can understand that is, and I don't know how else to put it except that theological phrase, this is the permissive will of God. God is permitting this. For a greater purpose and end, he's going to give an oracle judgment to Saul. You wanted to talk to Samuel? This is, I'm, I'm saying, here, God speaking, so to speak. You want to talk to Samuel? I'm going to let you talk to Samuel. Right. I mean, I see it. And I'm going to permit this to happen so that you're going to hear from Samuel the oracle of judgment. You're done, Sam, Saul. Right. Your days are over. Yeah. Would you agree with the NASB rendering of a divine being? You mean the way they? I didn't. I didn't. God, lowercase God. Is oh, in I see. In verse thirteen, different. I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Yes. Is that how they translate it? Yes. I see. I'm I'm a little uncomfortable with that, uh, but you know, it's it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to because what the NASB is trying to do there, and what the ESV is trying to do is they're trying to use a term, use an expression that captures 
the worldview of this occult art person in terms of what they see. She is not seeing the one true only God. She is not affirming the one true only God. This fits with her worldview. The gods are coming up out of the earth and going to communicate to us. You know what I mean? That's, she's not speaking the theology of the Hebrew. She's speaking the theology of the dark kingdom of Satan. How they would explain things and talk about things. The spirits, right? The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. And exactly. Now it's something like that, yep. Got Go it. And verses uh, 16 through 19 are all through the, through the medium, through the through this witch, what what is what is being transpired? Well, no, this would be Samuel actually speaking to Saul. Is that, your, is that what you're saying? This isn't the witch speaking. This is Samuel actually speaking to Saul. Okay, he is actually speaking to Saul. That's why I, I put it in that phrase. I've used it several times. God is permitting this to li- deliver an oracle of judgment against Saul. Yeah. Okay. This is not the norm for God, but God permits lots of things, like with Balaam, a donkey speaks. That's not God's norm, but he chose to reveal things that way. Now, Saul's response is quite interesting, and that's in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. This is Saul's last supper. It's supposed to be a joke. Okay. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And a woman came to Saul. When she saw that he was terrified, she said, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you eat, that you may have strength. When you go on your way, he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. He arose from the earth, sat on the bed. Now, the woman had a fattened calf in the house. Uh, that's an odd way for you and me to even process this. But um, in if you ever go to Israel, you still see it that way in a lot of the rural homes. The bottom, the bottom floor of the home is where the animals are. You live in the second down in the bottom floor. She had this calf that she had fed and nurtured for very special occasions. So she's going to take this calf that she has been specially feeding and preparing just in the bottom of her home, and she's going to give it to Saul. And she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread in it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they arose and went away that night. So, again, this is Saul's last supper before he dies because that next section is going to be the death of Saul by suicide, actually, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's not a last supper of celebration and worship. It's a last supper of dread and fear. Let me suggest something to you. After all that had just happened to Saul, There's all this crazy stuff with this medium and necromancy and all that stuff. And another opportunity God is giving Saul to repent. Seven times he heard Yahweh's title, the name Yahweh used by Saul, excuse me, by Simon. He'd heard the oracle. 
if Saul was really serious about his relationship with God, this should have brought him to a point of repentance and contrition. Forgive me, O God, I have sinned horribly. I've lived a life of rebellion against you. I accept that you're going to end my life tomorrow in the battle. But I don't want to end it without being restored to you. You don't see that. This is the tragedy of Saul. Time after time after time, you could say, God in his grace gives Saul an opportunity. This is his final opportunity, but you don't see it. And men, again, I'm asking you to kind of think about this as you contrast him with so many other people in the Old Testament, where that repentant, contrite heart once again is shown. David, Jacob, Abraham, these great heroes of the Old Testament, you don't see it with Saul. Saul's a tragic figure. And this last and final opportunity where he could have fallen on his knees, crying out to God, he knew he was going to die. But you don't see it. All right. Now, chapter 29, we'll go back to David now. But uh, we have about, uh, not quite 20 minutes, but any questions about chapter 28? It's really not a very long chapter, as the other chapters have gone. But it, it helps us to get a final insight into the tragedy, into the tragedy of Saul. Instead of repentant, contrite heart, you see a, 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 a man of dread and fear online or anybody any question final questions about this good discussion okay all right Russ thank you for your question earlier let's shift now as we were introduced to this in the first couple of verses of chapter 28 now we go back David had agreed as the Philistines are Attack, and they're going to, as we just learned from that work of judgment, they're going to successfully split Israel in half. They're going to conquer the Jezreel Valley. The question now, because David had been asked by Achish, remember he's down serving Achish, the ruler of Gath, and all that stuff. Achish had said, Will you go with me? And he says, Yeah, I'll go with you. Good, you're going to be my bodyguard. Now, the question will be, and this is what 29 is all about, are the other Philistine leaders going to agree with this decision to let David join them in the military campaign to split Israel in half. Verse 1, chapter 29. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. You you can go to the map and see where Aphek is. It's on the, the west side of the Jezreel Valley. That's where they're headed into that. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. The spring is no doubt the spring of Herod, which is right at the foot of Mount Gilboa. That's where, you might go back to Judges 6, that's where Gideon had gathered his army at the spring of Gilboa. That's no doubt where they are. So they're in Mount Gilboa here. The Philistines are here. That's the arrangement, basically. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Now that, let's just make sure we understand that. 
the lords of the Philistines would have been the leaders of the five cities of the Philistines. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Eldon. They're the five cities. They're the five lords. They're the leaders, political and military leaders of the Philistines. Their armies, they've mustered their armies. Hundreds and thousands are passing. Where's David? He's back with Achish in the very back of the army. So those 600 Jews, Israelites, who are loyal to David, they're back here with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said, I'm in verse 3, what are these Hebrews doing here? Now that's very unusual. Not very many times in the Old Testament are they called Hebrews. They are, but it's not the norm. Jews or Israelites. So in this context, and the way it is used at this point in history, this is very demeaning. This is very derogatory. What are they doing here? Now let me ask you a question. Is that a reasonable question? <laughs> sure it is. We're about to split Israel in half, and these Jews are with us. What are they doing here? I'm trying to add a little animation to make sure you're excited about this, that you understand. I mean, what they're saying is very legitimate. Hold it. What are these guys doing here? Nakey said to the commanders of the Philistines, is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, has been with me now for days and years? Remember, he's been with him about 16 months. We learned that last week. Since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. I know who he is. I know his reputation. But listen, he's running. He's been with me for 16 months. I have found no fault in him. What's the inference? He's loyal. You can trust him. He's a good He's guy. proven it to me for these 15, 16 months. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> okay, just back up for a minute. Remember, you're David. And you hear this guy saying this stuff. Wouldn't you almost hang your head in shame? Seriously? Is this really what I want? Remember, David is consumed by fear. David is not walking with the Lord at this point. Fear is overriding his faith. Verse 4, what's the first word? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you had assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord, meaning to Achish? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck his thousands David is 10,000. Now step back for a minute. 
The Philistines knew of that song. The Philistines could repeat the lyrics of that song. And they're saying, here's what we know about David, and he's right here with us. He's our adversary. By the way, this is an aside, but the Hebrew word for adversary is Satan. Because Satan means adversary. The title Satan is the Hebrew title. Satan means adversary, and obviously the adversary of God. But they're using that term. He's our adversary. And these other leaders are saying, this is incredulous. There is no way David is loyal to us. Achish, I don't care what you're saying. There is no way this guy is going with us to the battle in the Jezreel Valley to fight Saul. He is Saul's fifth column. He is Saul's he is Saul's set of CIA spies who are going to undermine us once the battle. I'm using American language to drive home the point, but I think you got it. Then Achish called David and said to him, now I want you to notice the language he uses. As Yahweh lives, because all of your translations should have Lord in capitals uppercase letter. So Achish, this Philistine, is using the language of Israel. As Yahweh lives, you have been honest, and it, to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, where I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. So go back now, go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? I can imagine this, this language of David is astonishing to me. But what have I done? Why have you found in your servant from the day I entered your servant to now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achis answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. That is the greatest example of hyperbole in the Bible I've ever seen. Hyperbole is the language of exaggeration. Nevertheless, the commander of the Philistines has said, he shall not go up with us in battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you. These are apparently... Most expositors think from First Chronicles 12, from the tribe of Manasseh that David had hired, but nonetheless, in addition, came with you. Start early in the morning and depart. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. Philistines went up to Jezreel. David goes south, they go north. They're going to conquer Israel and split it in half. David goes back to Ziklag. Now, <clears throat> Let's think theologically about this chapter. What's the role of God in all this? His perfect will. Okay. This whole discussion and dialogue and cluster of events that are summarized in verse 29, did that slip up on God's blind side? Did he miss this one? Was he not aware of what's happening here? What's the word? Providence. Providence. 
This is the providence of God. This is the sovereign providence of God at work. Let me paraphrase it something like this. David is my man. I've chosen him to be the king. He's of the tribe of Judah. I have I have marked him out in my sovereign will to be the king of this and nothing is going to stop that from happening. David is in sin. David is not walking with me. But I am going to superintend the events of his life, of Achish, of these other Philistine lords to protect David from doing something that would thwart my plan and destroy his life. I, the sovereign God of the universe, will not let that happen. Maintain the redemptive plan. Yes. Everything hangs on this. You see, God blesses and carries out his will so often instead of what we do, not because of what we do. Now, David is going to have to be disciplined, and that's what the next chapter is all about. David's going to have to be corrected. But what happens in chapter 30 brings David back to the Lord. Put it another way. What happens in chapter 30 brings David back to his senses. What happens in chapter 30 is going to get David back into a deep fellowship with the Lord. David is acting stupidly here. It's unbelievable that he would agree and actually be a bit destitute that the other lords would let him go into the battle against his people. Israel, which is unbelievable. So chapter 30 is, a, is, in effect, how God gets David back. But David, excuse me, the Lord allows him to go through some real agony for a little bit to get him back. Okay, chapter 29 is even a shorter chapter. It's only 11 verses. Got it? Understand what's going on? God's superintendent yep, providence. And in your life and my life, God still does that. In spite of what we do, he still takes care of us. Brings us back. Restores the relationship. But when we act foolishly and sinfully, God's still superintending our lives over, in a, way, in a way, overriding some of the dumb things we do that ultimately protect us and keep us safe in his will. And that's what he's doing here. Amazing with David. And as Fred correctly said, another larger macro view of this, the whole redemptive plan hangs on this. <laughs> David cannot go and fight the Philist fight with the Philistines, his people of Israel. That's crazy. That's not gonna happen. So God protects him. Can we have some application of that? No. Why would we want to apply the word of God to our lives? No, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Absolutely. I was thinking that you would be the source of that, that concept. No, I'm kidding. Yes, go ahead. What? 
Oh, you want me? Well, in a way, I just, I was saying that so often in our own lives, instead of, you know, what we're doing, God blesses instead of what we're doing, not necessarily because of what we're doing. There are many times when we allow the variety of things in our lives, when we're down spiritually or the circumstances of life, we say things or engage in things or actually do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Does that mean God's done with us? That's it. You're done. I don't want anything to do with you. No. He will do everything he can to get us back. See, that's the point I was making is this whole discussion with Saul in that last chapter, chapter 28, where he goes to Endor. God, I, 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 that's how I taught that. God in his grace is giving a final opportunity for Saul to repent and in contrition fall on his face before the Lord, even though he knows the next day he's going to die at Mount Gilboa. He doesn't do that. You see that hard heart of Saul still there. God loves us so much, and his grace so explains his relationship with us. Even when we sin, and even when we're allowing circumstances to overcome us, and, and in, a, in, a, in a sense cause us to do some things that are wrong, are, are, are not wise, or sometimes even sinful, that doesn't mean God cuts us off. God loves us, cares for us, graciously protects and providentially superintends the things of our life. And often, as he's going to do with David, will discipline us. Because the word discipline in Greek means train. That's really what it means, to train us. We're in training. We're all in training to get us back to that vital center of relationship. And that's what God's going to do with David in chapter 30. So we shouldn't be giving up on ourselves. Because God doesn't. Because God doesn't. No, God doesn't. No. Nope. I used to have one of these young guys I would work with when I was in leadership at an institution, but I always had a mentoring group of young guys, and I can all remember over the years, half a dozen of them saying at various times, I keep doing the same thing. God's given up on me now. He's abandoned me. And I would look that guy in the eye and say, God never abandoned you. If you're his child, he never abandons you. He may discipline you. He, he may do everything he can to smooth off those rough edges. And sometimes that hurts, but it's always for our good, but he will never abandon you. No matter how many times I fought, no matter how many times you fought. Well, I believe it's time that the Filipinos called that God on the wall. So we're going to bow to that God on the wall a talk because I've got to get to another meeting. So uh, I hope this was a good session. You see, you see Saul and David in both unbelievable situations. <laughs> we're going to see what God does now. Chapter 30 is on David. Chapter 31 is on Saul. And then we're done with the book. I suspect, unless you ask me a lot of questions, I suspect that next week we're going to finish first time. Which we don't do very often in this class, finish the book of the Bible. So, Lord willing, that's what will happen. Father, thank you for what we can learn from David and Saul. Lord, uh, don't ever let us have such a hard heart that we are never responding to what you're doing in our lives with a repentant, contrite heart. Keep softening our hearts that we respond to you and your grace. 
And as with David, he is at the end of himself. He's been running from Saul for over 10 years. He is tired. He's weary. And his faith is so weak. And he runs to the Philistines, about to engage in an absolutely unimaginable act. But you protect him. You do not let him do that. And you're going to help to discipline and correct him and train him in another stage of development. As you're growing his faith and, and growing his character, deepening his faith and growing his character. We're going to see that next week. And then we'll see the death of Saul, the conclusion of that tragic, tragic figure. Lord, we don't want to be like Saul. Ultimately, we want to be like David. He always comes back to you. That contrite, repentant spirit, he always learned from your hand. Help us to be that malleable in your hand, always allowing you to do what you want to do, so that we become all that you want us to be. So we pray this in the name of your dear son. Amen.